You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Katie Herzog. Katie is a freelance writer, and she is also the co-host of the podcast Bard and Reported, which I highly recommend you check out, and I will put a link in the show notes. I am, in fact, a a patron of that podcast, um, and I don't patronize many things because my income is pretty low. Oh, Blocked and Reported. I I figured Um, that was the British version, Bard and Reported. (laughs) Bard and Reported. It is very confusing that every time I go to my Patreon feed to listen to our podcast, it says... I can't remember. Well, I used to be in the cancelled tier and it said cancelled each time I looked. And I was always really confused and wondering how I had managed to cancel my subscription without meaning to. This has happened. This is, this has happened with many people. It was a terrible choice of a name. We'll have like an event for our patrons. And if you are a member of the cancelled tier, when you get a notification saying that the the event is happening, the first word is cancelled. So we probably should rethink that. Yeah, I was confused for ages, but I've worked it out now. Jesse's fault. Jesse's fault. I'm just a cancelled person, or I was. I did lower my subscription a little bit, but um, times have been very tough for me, but I'm still supporting you. And uh, you are the only reason I'm able to now run for 30 minutes straight. Wow, that's impressive. I did couch to 5k, wow. uh, or rather a kind of similar version, starting, I guess, around August. I did say on a previous podcast that I started in May, but it was August. In fact, I misremembered. And um, I got through those difficult early runs by listening to your podcast. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I also, uh, I tried to do the couch to 5k, but so far I'm still stuck in the couch phase. Yeah. the You know, you don't want to rush it. Right. Right. You might want a few more years in the couch phase before you <laughs> gradually in increments. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the pre-contemplation phase. So I asked you here today to talk about your article, um, which you wrote on uh, Andrew Sullivan's Substack. And there's also a longer version available for patrons of your podcast, I, I've read the longer version and I will, but I will also link to the public version, which is called Where Have All the Lesbians Gone? And now I've had that song in my, as an earworm in my head for the last week. So <laughs> now everyone else does too. I am not going to attempt to put that to music. Um, in which you talk about uh, the decline in the number of uh, lesbian bars and spaces and also the decline in the numbers of people, of women identifying as lesbians. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the how, how lesbian bar culture used to be and what's happened there first, maybe. Yeah, so this is something that I've observed over about the past decade, and a lot of other people uh, who I've been in touch with have observed it as well. So first of all, talking about uh, lesbian bars. There are, um, at this point, I believe there are 15 lesbian bars left in the United States. Uh, there were apparently something like 200 in the 1980s. And there are lots of reasons um, why lesbian bars are on the wane. Part of that is COVID, I'm sure. Uh, bars are on the wane right now. Um, but even before COVID, the acceptance of gay people in, in American society means that there's less of a need to to have our own segregated spaces. So that's also part of it. You don't see quite the dramatic decline among gay bars. Um, And I I think that is probably cultural in some ways as well. Maybe gay men are just more likely to want to go to their own bars than lesbians are. And it's not as though these spaces have entirely disappeared. Like There are still lots of bars that maybe formerly catered to lesbians that now, in an effort to be more inclusive, have rebranded as queer bars. Um, But you do see a lot of 
of angst about this within within the queer community. And I, and I don't really like to use the term queer community because that presupposes that there is one and there really isn't. There are lots of little populations of, of gay people and trans people and lesbians. Some of, there's some overlap, of course, between these populations, but the idea that there's a community, um, there just isn't. It's, it's too big and too, and too, uh, too disparate um, to really have a one community. Um, but so within within the the lesbian community, if you want to call it that, or the queer community, over the past about ten years, maybe longer, there has been this uh, this trend where lesbianism is seen as problematic because it is not inherently inclusive of trans identities. And so, like in Portland, for instance, in Portland, I, I lived in Portland, Oregon, um, right out of college in the the early two thousands. And there was a couple of lesbian bars, but more than that, you would have these these uh, these nights, like a monthly dance party every uh, you know once a month. That would be specifically for, for lesbians. And there's been a lot of um, drama over those events. So there was one event in Portland called Temporary Lesbian Bar that was a monthly dance party. And in their 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 logo and their like their uh, their iconography for their for their branding. They had a, a, a an, an illustration of a, of a labrys, which is a double-headed axe, and the labrys is an old symbol in lesbian iconography. And they were accused of trans woman exterminationism for using that symbol. And when exterminationism, I right? It's always so dramatic. It's so dramatic, as though there's some sort of genocide. Um, and, and the interesting thing to me is that you rarely see this sort of hand wringing over gay men's spaces. It does it does happen sometimes, especially in cities like Portland or, or Seattle, where I live. But it's just to a much much smaller degree. So like, and not even in, in lesbian spaces, but in women's spaces. So there was a big uh, a big conflict a couple years ago um, at a at a spa for women in Seattle. It's actually owned by a, a trans a trans man. Um, at this point, but uh, but there was this this big drama over the fact that um, trans women weren't you know who were who had penises didn't feel included in this space and so they they changed their rules. I think that it was it is much less likely that you'll see a male bathhouse where they're going to have these uh, th- this sort of infighting over over allowing people with vaginas into their spaces. Um, so this really seems to be focused on on lesbian spaces. I have heard actually um, gay men bitching about um, about women usually going to gay bars um, or yeah. even straight men going to gay bars to pick up the women who've gone to the gay bars. Right. Um, and there was a big controversy over this in Buenos Aires a couple of years ago whilst I was living there. And some a lot of gay bars then started to announce that they were straight friendly. Ah, interesting. To, to sort of differentiate themselves. Because I guess they still wanted the custom. Of course, that's a rather different issue. Um, and the women went there because they enjoyed the music and the ambience and I guess the drinks and wanted to feel less lecched upon by straight men. Yeah, sure. There's a long history, especially of bachelorette parties going to going to gay bars. Mm, mm. Oh yeah, I think it was a bachelorette party that that sparked a big controversy. Um, in Buenos Aires because they had taken over, or it wasn't, I don't know if it was Bachelorette, but it was this large women's kind of um, hen night style thing. Mm-hmm. They don't have hen nights there, but you know, this girl's night out where they had just obnoxiously sort of monopolized the, the bar. Um, and that began a big complaint about about the sort of trespass on gay men's spaces. Right. It, it's a very interesting question you know should small groups be able in 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 a in an egalitarian society be able to self segregate yeah so it's so it's partly that um it's partly that there have been general there have been other reasons for the bars declining but partly it's really people are closing or rebranding their lesbian bars because they're afraid of accusations of transphobia yeah I think sometimes it's out of fear, and sometimes, like I talked to, um, I talked to a woman who who was a part of this lesbian scene in Portland, who who uh, who who told me essentially that that they rebranded their event to be a, a queer night instead of a lesbian night out of fear. I'm sure in other cases it's because they really do want to be more inclusive. Um, you know, uh, that's 
certainly a if you if you think that these spaces should be integrated, that that can certainly be a worthy goal. But for some people, it is certainly uh, based in, in in fear of social ostracization or, or getting canceled. Mm, mm. And you also talked about um, a huge rise in the number of young women who would probably have earlier considered themselves or been considered lesbians, identifying as non-binary. Right, non-binary and trans. Um, I specifically looked at or wrote about non-binary, the rise of the non-binary label, because partially to avoid some some inevitable headaches, but also because you know gender dysphoria is a medical diagnosis, one that I I I fully believe in. I, I know this exists, and I also know that for many for many people, gender dysphoria the best treatment uh, is is social or, or physical transition. Um, the non-binary thing is is different though, and, and it's a bit hard to talk about because the labels get really confusing. Um, because some trans people consider themselves non-binary, some trans people are offended by the whole the whole idea that they would be non-binary because the entire point of of transition for them is to be the opposite sex or at least appear as the opposite sex. Um, and so the labels get they're very ambiguous, uh, they're vague, um, they tend to, to change from from sort of year to year. But what have I what I've observed. And I live in a. I live outside Seattle, but I lived in Seattle for five years, and and before that, I lived in sort of mid-sized and, and small uh, American cities. And I observe this not just in places like Portland and Seattle, but also in, in North Carolina, where I'm from. And my first sort of inkling that something was happening was in I believe this is in 2012 or 2013. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, so a southern city. And I was I was good friends with a trans guy, and he had moved there from a, a, an even smaller town in North Carolina, sort of rural area. And when he was living in this small town, he lived in a house with it was either four or five lesbians in this house. And then my friend transitioned, and, and he was one of these people who uh, had gender dysphoria from a very young age. His transition was very successful, both social and and physical. It was clearly the right decision for him, um, but. Within a year of his transition, everyone in his household had had transitioned, and I just found that sort of unbelievable. Like in terms of just what we know about the the, the incidence of gender dysphoria, and how would you have all of these people in the same household who had the same medical condition at the same time? It just seemed very bizarre to me. But but I thought it was at the time I thought it was an anomaly. And then it started spreading. It started happening over and over. Um, and so at this point, I, I should really keep a, a spreadsheet to keep track of the number of, of for women or people who formerly identified as queer women, um, whether they call themselves lesbians or not, because lesbian is sort of a, as a term, it's sort of old fashioned um, to a lot of people. But, but people who in another term would have been considered homosexual females, I just started observing just large numbers of people in my own social networks transitioning. And this is still happening. Um, and what interests me about this is that nobody seems to be saying, what is going on here? Or the people who do say it, people like me, are sort of immediately pegged as, as, as transphobic or problematic or whatever. Some of them are calling themselves non-binary and doing very little to change their sort of outward presentation. They just change their pronouns. Um, and others are, you know, having surgery and taking taking hormones and things like this. I wish I could tell you how many how many people this was. I, I'm I mean, I'm talking about dozens and dozens of people. Um, it's been really extraordinary to watch to the point where I have, like, I have a friend in Seattle who uh, who is attracted to butch women, and this tends to be butch women. And she tells me on a regular basis that she can't find anyone to date because all of the butch, butch excuse me all of the butch women. Are disappearing, and she doesn't want to date a trans guy. She she's a lesbian. She wants to date a lesbian. Um, so, I put out a call on Twitter asking for for stories to see if this is just something that I was observing, or if this is something that was more widespread. And I got so many responses from people. And of course, this is skewed by um, by my followers, and and uh, you know it's anecdotal. But I got so many responses from people saying, "Yes, I have observed this." I got a, an email from a woman in Seattle, a, a college student. Um, she's I think she was twenty one. And she said that, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, I have heard that in the olden times, there would be, you know, there would be more than, than one lesbian in a group. Uh, I have heard that there is such a thing as femme lesbian. 
Um, but I have yet to meet anyone, any of them. And she was 21 years old. And it's not as though her, 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 her crowd isn't that they all consider themselves straight. They don't. In fact, most of them consider themselves queer or pansexual or non-binary. But what they don't call themselves is lesbian. Mm. How much of that is just semantics, do you think? And how much is how much does that influence people's actual behavior? So in the case of people who are medically transitioning, I can see that. But if I, so I'm a, I, um, I'm a young woman who's attracted to other women, but instead of saying I'm a lesbian, I say I'm non-binary. Um, what does that change, do you think? That's a good question. So I think it is semantics. Um, but I, I also interviewed a couple of older women for my piece. One woman in her seventies. She's she's her name isn't famous, but her work is. Um, there's a photo. I don't know if this went quite as viral in the UK, but in the US around the time of the Hillary Clinton campaign, there was this photo of a of a. It was a meme, but it was a, a photo from the 1970s of a woman wearing a T-shirt that said "The future is female." And uh, this woman, Liza Cowan, this went crazy, crazy viral. Lots of T-shirts were made, although now there's there's different versions of it. So now you see like future is non-binary or future is queer, trans or whatever. But but uh, this woman, Liza Cowan, took the first photo, this sort of famous photo in the 1970s. And I read her. She's in her 70s and, and she lives in Vermont. And she said, our history is disappearing. Nobody is asking for our stories. Nobody cares about lesbians. There's this this trend away from it, and because lesbians are considered problematic, nobody cares to capture our stories. And I think she's right about that. I mean, I, I don't think that 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 homosexual attraction or same sex attraction is going anywhere. In fact, I, I think it's on the rise. Um, but this label is disappearing, and for some people, that probably doesn't matter. But it's a little bit like. You know, I, I find there's I find it sad when the, you know the last the last uh, speaker of some language passes away. There just is something about losing losing this identity um, that I find a little bit tragic. There have also been I've noticed some rewritings of history. Um, oh yes, I mean there are all these all these figures in the 18th and, and early 19th centuries, um, and I'm sure beforehand as well, women who dressed and lived as men, uh, usually in order to have access to, to certain professions. So most famously, there was a, a doctor in Edinburgh um, and who had lived as a man all her life, all her adult life, and, and her biological sex was only, was only discovered after she died right. and was being prepared for, for burial. And she was a, a a, uh, a practicing doctor and I think a professor of medicine in Ed at Edinburgh University, which at that time would not have been possible for her as a woman. And there are also, there are a lot of um, folk tales of women who dressed up as men in order to join the army. That's a really common trope. I followed my, um, my sweetheart to the army. Um, and there are a number of court cases in the 18th century of women who married other women, who dressed as men and then married other women. And their, their wives usually try to escape punishment by claiming that, they, that, that, their, that their wives used a, a foul and unspeakable instrument, mm -hmm. i.e. a dildo, and they therefore didn't mm -hmm. realize they were, they were actually women because they wore a strap-on. That must have been an um, impressive, impressive instrument. <laughs> yes. I can't, I can't see how that could work, but you know. I've heard um, stories, yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot of cases like that, and um, many people are now claiming that all of those women were trans, and maybe some of them were trans. Maybe some of them also dressed as men because they had gender dysphoria. But it seems so. There were so many clear and obvious other reasons why a woman might have wished to. Um, dress and live as a man in that period. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, there has been this this rewriting of history, uh, especially with um, sort of impressive activist figures. Um, you know, and and yeah, you're right. Some of them might have had gender dysphoria, or what we now call gender dysphoria, and some of them might have just been, you know, trying to get around the restrictions of their sex at the time. Um, and there's not really any way, you know, they're not coming back from the dead. There's not really any way to know what the, what the truth is. Um, but so there has been this sort of um, 
postmortem transing of, of uh, lots of impressive women. You also said that, I mean, one of the things about the this kind of, uh, this I- idea of non-binary is that it suggests that if you are, if you're not typically feminine, or if you're not, if you're a woman, but not typically feminine, then you must be in some way not a woman. Right. I mean, not just an, uh, a not typically feminine woman, but not a woman. And, um, and vice versa for men. And that seems, that, that seems very regressive to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's my whole sort of complaint about this, uh, about this, the rise of this label is that it says, you know, instead of saying as, as feminists did for years and as, uh, as women working for lesbian liberation did, you know, I reject gender roles and I'm still a woman. I'm a woman who rejects gender roles. What it says is I reject gender roles and therefore I am not a woman. So on an individual level, I can see how this would be empowering for people. But on a macro level, I find it deeply regressive and problematic. Um, I I don't like the idea that little girls who are are butch or masculine or atrocious or little boys who are feminine uh, should be getting the message from the people around them or from the culture that that somehow means that they aren't men or aren't women. It's a contracting, a contracting of, of acceptable gender roles, not an expansion of them. Mm. I mean, I'm in favor of everybody doing whatever, the, every adult doing whatever the fuck he or she sure. or they likes. Um, and I, I completely support, for example, informed consent um, transitioning. You know, if you want to, if you want to medically or socially transition or declare yourself to be non-binary, that should absolutely be your right. And I also, I also think that you should be able to get that operation on the NHS. And um, if you want to get hormone therapy, you should be able to get it. You know, I think that adults should make their own decisions over their bodies. Agreed. And that's not the case here at the moment. We don't have informed consent for people who want to medically transition and i think that's a bad thing but uh, i think for many people i mean being trans is often very hard because if you are really trying to pass convincingly as the opposite sex um that's that's just got to be tough sure um, especially for uh especially for trans women it's much harder to um for you know yeah, males yeah. to pass as female than it is for females to pass as male um socially yes but but sexually i think it's it's more difficult for trans men right because the technology is the right. technology for constructing right. penises is not as good it's not um, as good there yeah there's there's major complications. so sex reassignment surgery bottom surgery um phalloplasty for trans men which is the construction of a penis and uh for women it's called i guess it's vaginoplasty um it's a very complicated surgery and there are there are real horror stories um especially about fa- actually for for both surgeries um and that's one of the problems is that you know if i wrote a piece about the complications of, of, of sex reassignment surgery, if I wrote it personally, this would be used, uh, used by my detractors to argue that I'm somehow not in favor of the surgery or I'm trying to deny trans people healthcare or something like that, when really it would really just be a piece about how trans people need better healthcare. Somebody else could write this piece and it would be totally fine. Um, but because I'm sort of, I've been sort of uh, defamed by various, various sides of, of the political spectrum, um, this would immediately become sort of more evidence that I'm transphobic. But this is this is really a problem. This, these surgeries can have really major complications. Yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of freedom, so I would like to see us in, improve the technology. Absolutely. So that if if you want to go and have that operation, you can have it, and will be everything will be totally functional and convincing and and um, great. You know, I think that would be a huge step forward. But in the meantime, at the moment, you're you're going to face all kinds of complications, um, all kinds of contradictions between how you want to be seen and how other people might see you, or might what they might insist on calling you, or um, how your body looks or functions. So it 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 seems to me that the best option is always to be satisfied with a sexual status quo if you can. 
Right. And there are uh, lots of trans people. I think that I would suspect, and I don't have any data on this, but I would suspect that the number of, of trans people who get bottom surgery is incredibly low um, compared to the, the number of trans people who keep their, keep their genitals in part because, you know, some, some people just don't want, you know, they don't want to change that. And also the surgeries can have major complications. Sorry, I somewhat digressed away from non-binary um, people in the non-binary culture. One thing I wanted to say, though, before I before I distracted myself and went off on that long digression is that I, um, I have known a lot of lesbians before the whole non-binary thing started and really before so many people started identifying as trans because I'm in my 50s. Um, so women who I knew who were lesbians when I was in my 20s, um, there were quite a, quite a high proportion of them who were not not necessarily gender dysphoric in any way, but very um, I mean very male identified, and historically, of course, that's always been the case. I and mean, even the first the first famous book about lesbianism, The Well of Loneliness, which I think was published in 1924, um, the main character is called John. She call, she chooses to call herself John, and she becomes a lesbian. The book implies because her parents wanted to have a son, and instead they were saddled with a daughter, and so she sort of took on the male role and became the son. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all kinds of dodgy pseudoscience, um, pseudoscientific explanations, sort of embedded in that. The author also, the author of that book, Radcliffe Hall. I'm sorry, the character, the, the protagonist calls herself Stephen, not John. Uh, but the author, Radcliffe Hall, calls herself John Radcliffe Hall. Um, she took a male name and always wore male clothes. And many of the lesbians I encountered also had, if not male names, then, then they took very um, unisex names like Chris or Joe or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them never ever wore, wore feminine clothing. And I remember uh, um, at least one, more than one lesbian friend said to me that she would not feel comfortable wearing a dress. Oh, yeah. And one friend said to me, when I have to put a dress on, I feel like I'm in drag, which I thought was a really interesting statement. And a friend of mine also went, she went to uh, she was in France with her girlfriend, and because she is very um, dikey looking, very androgynous or very masculine looking, cab drivers and other people address them as Mesdames, Monsieur. And she was thrilled by this. Mm-hmm. Um, she was kind of thrilled to be quote unquote misgendered. Um, and she said it felt more real to her, but none of those people. Uh, um, I don't know that any of those people were trans or were they trans? It really depends. You know, it's certainly a, a case-by-case basis. And there's some debate within uh, within the trans community about whether or not it, you're required to have gender dysphoria uh, in order to be trans. And in fact, people who who think that you you either need to have some sort of diagnosis or some sort of dysphoria or you think that you need to have some sort of medical in- intervention, they're sort of, um, they're considered problematic within at least like the younger trans community. Uh, they're called true scum or trans medicalists. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly, I haven't worn a dress since I was a child. I would feel, de- I would feel like I was in drag. I would be deeply uncomfortable with that. That doesn't mean that I'm a, I'm a, not a woman. Um, but I, I certainly know the, the discomfort of, uh, of female presentation. Mm, mm. So why uh, why is it that people are are no longer able to just present in a masculine way, or so many people? Sorry, I'm generalizing a little bit hugely here. Why is it that an increasing number of people are no longer content? You think to just present in a masculine way as women, but find it more appealing to to take on the non-binary label? My explanation for this is an unsatisfying one, but I think that it's a meme. I think that it's a trend. I think that this is something that people observing their communities doing and their friends doing, and and they're copying them essentially. Um, certainly, 
the ease at which uh, it is to to come out as trans or or non-binary has something to do with it for sure. But I just in the numbers of people that I'm seeing, I think that I think that there's something more cultural going on here, um, and it's oftentimes less about a deep sense of gender dysphoria, and it is more just uh, this is you know people uh, we're a mimetic species, and we tend to to follow our peers, um, you know, and and there's a lot of debate about this. This is an, an unpopular opinion to have, but we know that. Possibly, every aspect of human behavior is influenced by culture, right? So, uh, you know, of course, there's of course biology has a lot to do with it, but as a species, we are incredibly prone to social contagion. And so, why would this? Why would this one thing um, not be uh, be sort of immune from that trend, while everything else is from names to jobs to the dog breeds that are popular to fashions? Um, we copy each other, and there's no, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I don't think it makes it illegitimate, um, but I do think we need, we need to grapple with that, especially when it comes to people who might be seeking medical intervention that that ultimately might not be the best choice for them. Yeah, I I I mean I think I I'm even more cancelable in this regard than you are because I've already been canceled. <laughs> it's too late yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I I I feel that. Um, if I have one criticism of you, Katie and Jesse, it is that you have way too high a rating on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> and that suggests that your podcast is not controversial enough. You know, we we tend to have a lot of five-star reviews and a lot of one-star reviews and, and little else in the middle. Mm, yeah, there aren't enough one-star reviews. That yeah. dearth of one-star reviews yeah. suggests to me that you're playing it too safe. Yeah, it's possible. Or we just, uh, you know, we just have an echo, we've built an echo chamber for ourselves. Um, mm. And people don't, I've also found, you know, my co-host Jesse Single and I, we both have gotten a lot of shit um, on Twitter in particular about our, our work on, on trans issues. And I should say here for people who aren't familiar with us, neither of us are transphobic. Both of us uh, agree that trans people, especially trans adults, should have access to to the medical care that they need. They should be protected under the law. They should be respected in society. I don't misgender people or anything like that. Um, Jesse has written a lot about, about youth gender dysphoria, and he is, he is in, incredibly thorough with his, his, his research. And the conclusion that he's come to, and that I'm inclined to agree with, is that youth with a a good diagnosis, not a not a an hour long conversation with a therapist, but youth with a, a very good thorough diagnosis, should be you know permitted to have hormone blockers and and cross sex hormones when the time comes. Um, so we are not people that we have this sort of reputation for being transphobic or turfs or whatever. It's just not true, um, you know, and that would be very easy for people to come to that conclusion if they actually bothered to read our work or listen to our podcast. Yeah, I th I think that, I mean, the youth um, trans thing has become even more controversial here in the UK than mm -hmm. in the US. Um, Certainly. Because of the, there's a huge amount of controversy surrounding the only, um, the only youth gender clinic that we have, the Tavistock Clinic. I believe that's the only one which has, first of all, puts people on enormously long waiting lists to get seen. And then once they're seen, they seem to pass through the system extremely worryingly quickly. Right. Um, and there have been a lot of reports that um, there's, a, there's a very um, fast churn of staff and that staff who voice complaints have basically been fired. Right, but right, yeah. I don't know the whole details of that. So excuse me if Listeners, please excuse me if I got any of that wrong, and I will link to some of the material in the show notes. But I, I mean, I personally, my cancelable opinion is I really don't understand the concept of being non-binary. It doesn't make any sense to me. Right. To me, when, when, someone, um, when someone says, I'm non-binary, and you know, I can tell that's how I feel, to me, it makes no more sense than if they say, I feel like a typical Aries or something. Right. <laughs> right. I also, I also find, uh, find that I don't know how it is, how it is there, but at least, at least among the social circles that I've run in, uh, astrology is also incredibly popular. Um, my position on that, um, has also not made me, made me well liked. Um, you know, 
there's this idea that we've sort of, at least in, in, in liberal spaces in the U.S., that has become really accepted that everyone has an internal gender identity. And I'm not sure that I do. Um, I am a female. And how do I know that I'm a female? Well, my body is female. Um, but I'm not sure that I have something inside me that says you are a woman or you are a man. I just have a body. Um, and clearly there are, there are aberrations. There are people who do have a very incongruent um, feeling about their sex, but I'm not sure that means that all of us have this little, little gender identity. And, and the way people talk about it, it's almost like a soul or it's like some organ inside of you that we can't quite pinpoint, but it's inside of you when we, and, and therefore it needs to be respected and, and sort of treated in this, um, this sacrosanct manner and not questioned or not, or not talked about. And I just, I don't really buy that. It seems, I mean, I think there are two problems. One is the, as similar to the astrology thing, the question is, what difference does it make? Um, I.e., if I tomorrow announce I'm non-binary and I'm not changing anything about my body, my name, my physical appearance, my behavior, who I'm attracted to or who I sleep with, um, what is it that it actually has altered? I mean, what is it about me that has altered? That's really that's, the question. Mm. Yeah, and, and people, you know, people. Ad- I think that people also adopt this label because they either it's it's either claiming some sort of victimhood status or an effort to be cool. It's like saying I'm not like other girls or I'm not like other guys. Um, it's fashion, and you know, like I saw this I saw this this meme yesterday floating around Twitter, and this uh, it was a, a photograph of a, a clearly a, a female person. Um, she was wearing a very small dress. She was female. You could tell that this person was female and it's not as though she couldn't have been a trans woman, but she wasn't in this case, this person or they, this person was female. And this person, uh, you know, had, had written on Twitter or whatever after this with, along with this, this photograph of herself, um, taking issue with this idea of the super straight, which, uh, was a, a sort of silly campaign that was started a couple weeks ago where some guy was saying, you know, my sexuality is, is I am a super straight person. That is my sexuality. That means I'm only attracted to, to female people. And, uh, this woman or this person, this non-binary yeah, person. I'm not, wrote, I'm not a fan of the super straight thing. Right. It is, it is trolling certainly. It's but this, trolling. Per, this person wrote, you know, these people, they say they're super straight, but I'm non-binary. How come they're asking me for pics? Non-binary is trans. And it's like, well, okay, but you're also clearly a female you're wearing a, a like lingerie negligee you might call yourself non-binary but that doesn't mean the world is going to going to ignore the fact that you are a female bodied person um you can call yourself whatever you want but that doesn't mean that like you know that 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 super straight men are not going to be attracted to you all of a sudden because you've decided to adopt they pronouns yeah i mean i for example speaking personally um i would I would probably not date a trans man because um, until the techno- biotechnology is better, um, right. because I I don't think I can, um, I don't I don't think I would be happy with, um, with somebody with female genitalia or um, whose genitalia was kind of not uh, was a not very well executed um, version of male genitalia. Right. And that's a really right. awkward way of putting it, but I think you know what I mean. Right. Um, and I actually worked as an editor for a short time for um, two men who who do who special who specialize in gender reassignment surgery for uh, trans men. So I actually saw many photographs of penises and of the um, they had a spe- uh, um, a one of the one of the guys is. A surgeon and the other guy is a hydraulics engineer. So I actually saw um, in quite some detail what it entails. Yes. I'm absolutely happy to date trans men once that technology improves, if and when that technology improves during my lifetime. The fact that the person used to be a woman, what their history is, does not bother me at all. But of course, I find many trans men very attractive. You know, many women look fantastic as men. Sure. I have to say, um, a lot of trans men are really hot. I think that's um, that's normal. So maybe I'm not super straight. 
You know, there's this this interesting thing happens where let's say you have a, a bar like that would have been called a lesbian bar or a queer bar or something like that. There are lots of of uh, of lesbians who are very comfortable dating trans men, and that would seem like a contradiction. But and and those and trans men are, as far as I know, generally uh, generally welcome in, in lesbian spaces, lesbian nights, lesbian bars, things like that. I'm sure there are some cases, but in general, there is this sort of unspoken, tacit acknowledgement that trans men should still be included in lesbian spaces in a way that cis men would not, while at the same time, the narrative, the political narrative is that there is no difference between trans men and cis men. If that were true, then trans men would no longer be be, be uh, welcome in these spaces, but they are. Um, so I, everybody knows that there's a difference, and that doesn't mean people shouldn't be treated with respect. It doesn't mean their pronouns shouldn't be respected or they shouldn't be welcome in certain spaces. But we know there is a difference, and we sort of pretend that there isn't, um, or people people tend people some people pretend that there isn't. Do you have any stats on um, how many, what proportion of trans men are attracted to women as opposed to attracted to other men? So I actually recently saw a study about this, and I don't have the stats, but there was just so I've wondered about this because I've also observed. For years, I've been for years. I've been for probably fifteen years. I've been saying somebody needs to study, do a study on why so many trans men become gay men after they transition. Because it, oh, you know, yeah, this I is wasn't some, expecting you to say yeah, that. I was expecting it, you to say the opposite. No, um, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Oh. You'll have, and it's also very common to have two trans men in a relationship. So there might not be mm. any penises involved, but it's two people who present as male who, who who consider themselves men to be in a relationship. So they're now, they're trans men, but they're gay and not lesbians anymore. So this study that was published recently, I, I don't have it in front of me and I don't remember all the details, but what they found was that trans men's sexuality was much more aligned with sort of classic bisexuality. So much more so than than cis lesbians and, and cis men. Um, who are more likely to, you know, to be sexually attracted or aroused by by the object of the, their desire, um, whatever sex they're attracted to. And what they found was that was that trans men were much more likely to have these sort of bisexual tendencies um, than these other populations. You know, what's the reason for that? Could it be the effects of testosterone? That seems likely. Um, testosterone makes you really horny. Um, could it be something more cultural? That also seems possible. I, I'm not sure that they got into the reasons for it, but what they found was that there was a difference between trans man sexuality um, and lesbian sexuality and uh, and heterosexual male uh, sexuality. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Why? So, one thing I I guess for me is. Um, just thinking back again to the gender identity stuff, um, is that although I, I, I think of myself as very typically feminine, um, I don't, I don't see that as part of the kind of core, ex the core feeling of being woman with a capital W or something. Um, because I experience that as more like a taste or choice. Sure. You know, if I wanted to wear male clothes, I could. And especially as a woman, I think no, you know, no one, no one has batted an eyelid over women wearing men's men's clothing for a hundred years, right? One hundred and fifty right. years. It is at this point very socially acceptable to wear pants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, the eighteenth century it was a different thing, but right now, and you know, if I had, if my bedroom wasn't um, my bedroom where I'm sitting right now wasn't instead of all William Morris prints and things, if it was mm -hmm. kind of smoked glass and plain and dark wood, nobody would bat an eyelid at that either. Um, right. So, But I think that when I, where I do have this sense of the gender identity, of a kind of gender identity is in uh, in specifically sexual situations. And by that, I mean both both a sort of um, sexual as in biological sex, like right now when I'm having a hot flash because I'm going through menopause, mm -hmm. um, that that's a kind of immediate reminder. But also in situations where I desire somebody or I'm flirting with someone or I'm having sex with someone, that's when I feel most kind of like the, the kind of woman thing. 
that's when I feel more closest to being strongly in touch with a gender identity. And this may be just me, but I think that this, I, um, I think this might, this kind of, um, there are some obviously obvious connections here between that and the, the fact that so many, many gay men are, are more effeminate in certain ways and many lesbians are more butch in certain ways. And I, I certainly found it, uh, an interesting experience when I was dancing tango, for example. And I wrote an article about this, which I will link in the, in the, um, show notes, which was called, um, same sex, uh, same sex tango for in inverted commas straight people. Or it was called, no, sorry, I think it was called queer tango for straight people. Um, because my, uh, when I was dancing in the leader role, the man, the man's, when I was dancing with another woman in the male role, mm-hmm. it made me immediately feel very much, very kind of masculine, mm-hmm. even though nothing about me had changed at all. And I was maybe even wearing a, probably wearing a skirt or dress. I, I only put on flat shoes. I think sometimes I even led wearing high heels, but I still immediately had this weird kind of, masculinized feeling. And it manifested in, for example, uh, when I was talking about leading, I would say the other men on the floor rather than the men on the floor, i.e. sort of including myself (laughs) among them. Interesting. And that, so that was a strange, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I noticed a really odd connection there between who you're with and how you feel about your own gender identity. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. That might also explain why I feel so deeply uncomfortable when I uh, anytime I've tried to try to take a dancing class. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you could take the leader role and dance with women. I have done that. My wife and I took a, a dance class um, a few, maybe a year ago or so. And I did, I took the sort of the lead role. Um, and, you know, we were dancing with different people throughout the room. So I didn't ever dance with any any men. I only danced with women. And it did feel deeply awkward because I didn't want, like, I, I didn't want to do the leading because I'm a bad dancer. Um, but, it, you know, but I also was uncomfortable sort of being led by men. Um, so I took one class and then dropped out. Hmm. Well, you're not a bad dancer if you took one class. You're a person who has not who <laughs> has is, not attempted yeah, yeah. to learn to dance. That is true. <laughs> that is true. I could be a great dancer. Yes, I think you could. I'm I'm quite I'm quite serious. I used to teach dance for many years, so it's one of my bugbears. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you also about the 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 use of the word queer rather than um the move away from people labeling themselves lesbian towards labeling themselves queer. Yeah. What do you think about that trend? I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, so this is not, this is not particularly new. The term queer, I, I think became, started to be sort of reclaimed in the, in the eighties and nineties by gay people. Um, and, and you can see why it would, you know, it's a, it's inclusive. Um, it's not as sort of specific as, as, as lesbian and gay or bisexual or whatever, but it has, at this point, it has become so vague that it doesn't actually tell you anything about the person who calls themselves queer. So there are straight people, there are heterosexuals who are in polyamorous relationships who call themselves queer, who are kinky, who call themselves queer, asexuals call themselves queer. So this thing that r- really started out as a way of designating your sexuality um, or your sexual orientation has 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 really crept into a, into just sort of being kind of a, a, a marker of fashion. Um, so I don't like it. I, I no longer use it for myself, although I did for years. Um, I remember being very sort of struck the first time I heard someone refer to themselves as queer in the early, in the early 2000s. And I sort of thought, why would you call yourself this slur? Um, and then, you know, and then 20 years later, it's, it's everywhere. It's, uh, it's incredibly accepted. Um, if I had my way, we would, all, we would all identify ourselves by our numbers on the Kinsey scale, which actually tells you something about people. Um, and I do um, think I that- I think that's quite useful, actually. Yeah, yeah. Retrograde, maybe, but useful. And, and I do think, I think that female sexuality is, is much more fluid than male sexuality. And there are plenty of studies that back this up. And there's, um, 
you know, there a, a study came out or a survey came out recently from Gallup, this uh, American um, polling company, and uh, and what they found was that the the percentage of of Gen Zs of Gen of Zoomers between eighteen and twenty four, so the poll is only of adults, but between I think eighteen and twenty four, was something like it was over eleven percent of females. So a very very high percentage of people um, among this generation consider themselves bisexual. And some people were cynical about this and said, like, uh, you know, they're 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 kind of faking it because the survey also asked them, um, are you in a you know, are you in a relationship, a same sex relationship or an opposite sex relationship? And the vast majority of them are were in opposite sex relationships. Um, And maybe that could be because there just aren't that many lesbians. But well, the bisexual women could also be dating each other and they don't appear to be doing that. Um, so I do think that female sexuality is, is much more fluid and, and that's fine. And, and those people who are genuinely bisexual should certainly, you know, feel welcome to, to call themselves queer or, or adopt that label or the bisexual label. But, you know, that can also, there's a, like my wife is bisexual. She's in a monogamous married relationship to a woman. Um, that is the smallest percentage, the smallest percentage of the bisexual uh, population or people who are in married same-sex relationships. It was something like less than 1%, just a very, very small, small percentage. So bisexuality can, uh, can encompass people like my wife. It can also encompass people who, uh, you know, kissed a girl one time in college. Um, so I, I do find that these labels aren't actually helpful. And uh, in the sort of cooler or hipper it becomes to be not straight, um, the more people are going to adopt these labels. Well, I think a lot of women um, have had some same-sex, some feelings of attraction sure. to other women. Totally I think normal. it's right. very, very common. Yeah. So I can see why those, um, and and in many cases, um, those attractions never amounted to anything. Right. Um, for lots of reasons, for reasons of kind of practicality, they weren't sure if the other person was a lesbian and was or, or was also attracted to them. Um, or also because those attractions weren't that strong mm-hmm. um, or were more ambivalent or were more fleeting or whatever. So I think that it maybe many women are reaching for that label because, because of the fluidity of female sexuality. It feels wrong to them to say heterosexual because that seems to imply an exclusivity that they don't feel. Right, um, right, right. Glenn Greenwald has has talked a lot about this and, and his point, and I, and I think it's a good one, is that, you know, if you're bisexual and you are not in a same-sex relationship and you, you have all of the, the same legal protections as everybody else, are you really facing any sort of adversity? Um, I mean, you might be in your relationships, I suppose, but but legally and, and socially, if you're in a same-sex relationship, do you need any sort of extra protections? Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that, that they do, um, because you do have all of the, you know, rights afforded to you as a, as a heterosexual person. Hmm. Yeah, I have to agree. That's another case where it feels as though you're talking about something you feel inside. Right. Um, but which may really not affect your life practically in any way. Um, so if you are married, if, if, if you're a woman married to a man, for example, in a monogamous relationship married to a man, is the fact that you're bisexual important to anyone except for you and maybe your partner if he has some feelings about it? Right. Um, I guess the argument would be that people need to, you know, you should always come out or whatever, be uh, be honest about, be upfront about your sexuality to make it sort of easier uh, to normalize it for other people. Um, but hmm. I think you're right. Hmm. I mean, if you if you're in a, a same or an opposite sex marriage. Um, you know, it is disclosing your like your personal feelings all that important. I'm, I, I don't think I would find it important to to revise my sense of myself as a lesbian if I found a man attractive. Which I'm not blind; I can find men attractive. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not uh, that I'm not gay, though. Mm. Yeah, I think. I mean, it is quite striking the difference between men and women in this regard. I'm sorry if I'm getting too off topic here, but uh, you know, I have so I have male friends who used to be married to women who are now in same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. And I also have female friends who used to be married to men who are in same-sex relationships now. Mm -hmm. And almost across the board, 
they the men describe that trajectory differently from the women. So the men say things like, at that time, I didn't realize I was gay. Mm-hmm. I yep. was always gay, but I was in the closet and I was even hiding it from myself or or something like that, implying this kind of deep-seated, um, continuing core identity. And the women say something like, if they if they even put it in these terms, usually they just say, "Well, I used to be married to Bill, and now I'm I'm now I'm with Joanne." Um, they don't uh, they don't usually even kind of put a label on it, but um, those who have have just said have said things like, "I used to be straight, and now I'm um, a lesbian." So uh, women seem to have a completely different attitude towards this idea of the core sexuality. Even when the trajectory looks I- identical, looks like just a mirror image of the male story. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, part of that, I think, like everything else, there's probably a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture there. Um, it's possible. I mean, there there have been studies where they hook males and females up to electrodes and, and measure their their physiological response to watching different types of erotic I- images or pornography or whatever. And what they found is that female sexuality is much more fluid than male sexuality. And maybe mm-hmm. there's some sort of adaptation there. Um, I, and that includes when you like, I haven't looked at this study in a long time. I don't know if it would hold up. But there was some study that I believe they they hooked women up to electrodes and then measured their response when they saw scenes of like animal sex. And they still had some sort of physiological response. And the evolutionary uh, explanation for that would be that this is your body sort of, um, you know, because women can women are more likely to be the victims of of rape and assault and and uh coerced sex then this is sort of your body prepping itself to uh to do to have less damage done to you um so that might be a part of it it might also just be cultural that it is harder for in in current society and in, in most of history it's harder for men to transgress those sort of gender roles which i think is true as you, as you mentioned you know it's nobody bats an eye when a woman wears pants um, if a man wears a dress, people bad eyes. Mm, mm, yeah. So it's it's odd, therefore, that so many more, um, it seems that now so many more women than men are transitioning. Are also more women than men identifying as non-binary and, and queer? Is that your impression? That's my impression. We don't have good data on this. Um, there was a, a, this Gallup survey that came out recently, asked about sexuality but they didn't ask and 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 trans uh and trans identification but they didn't ask specifically about queer and non-binary labels so i don't think we can extrapolate much from that particular gallup poll um from my observation yes you i i see more more females the people who would have been considered females transitioning or also adopting these non-binary labels i think that's changing a little bit i think it's becoming more uh, socially acceptable and, and trendy for for males to do it as well um but for the past 10 years, at least, it's been, from my observation, it's been many more women than men. I do have some sympathy with people using the queer label. Um, Well, I mean, I do fundamentally think people should use whatever labels they like, but nevertheless, we can still have a a feeling that we don't like the fact that they use those labels. Um, But I do have some sympathy with them because um, the idea of homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality um, doesn't uh, doesn't encom- seem to encompass, uh, there seem to be many people's experiences that those labels or even the Kinsey scale do not encompass, firstly because of this female sexual fluidity. I mean, I've come to accept that even though I've never really had strong attractions to women, I might end up in a lesbian relationship because this seems to have happened to a lot of my friends. Yeah. Um, one of my friends told me, she said, I've reached that age where, you know, when you get into bed with somebody, you don't know whether it's going to be a man or a woman. Interesting. Um, I've reached that age. That was such an odd <laughs> thing. <laughs> kind yeah. of age out of, out of heterosexuality. Yeah. Um, it's just a phase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is certainly, I mean, I think a lot of young people sort of don't realize how much progress has been made um, socially in terms of the acceptance of gays and lesbians over the past, even the past 20 years. I mean, when I came out in the early 2000s uh, in college, 
the idea that gay people would someday be married or it would be common, not just not just usual, but just common for, for people like me to have children, it just didn't seem real. It just absolutely did not seem real. And this was in, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and you go back 20 years before that and, and the lives of gay men and women could have, were just horrific um, in lots of places. And, and I think there's sort of a lack of historical perspective on just how quickly uh, things have changed. I mean, even in the past five years in this country since, um, since gay marriage was legalized, I mean, before the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, there were many, many states who had passed constitutional amendments banning gay marriage. And now that fight is really over. It's, it's, it's pretty much accepted, except among, you know, um, some uh, conservatives. Mm, mm. I have gay friends, interestingly, who argue strongly that there's too much focus on gay marriage as an issue. Sure. Um, I mean, gay marriage, of course, is legal here in the UK, has been for some time, and was legalized by our right-wing conservative government. That's interesting, uh, yeah. And uh, now also, it's legal for straight people to opt for a civil partnership instead of marriage. Um, yeah, they got rid of that here, uh, which I think is sort of unfortunate. Um, so now there's just marriage. Civil unions are sort of uh, have gone by the wayside now that we have the right to marry. Ah, right. Yeah, uh, Peter Tatchell, the, the famous um, gay campaigner, actually spearheaded this campaign for straight people to be able to have civil partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, because previously, if you were in a, uh, in a same-sex relationship, you could marry or have a civil partnership, but heterosexuals could only have a civil partnership right. and uh, only have marriage. And um, he campaigned against this and he said it was, dis um, it was discriminatory against straight people. Yeah. Um, so uh, now there is a, a, there is legal parity, but there are still um, the church has a lot of restrictions, and uh, you know a lot. I I I certainly have gay friends who feel that even in countries where gay marriage is not yet legal, it sort of shouldn't be an issue that we don't really need that anymore. That relation gay relationships are accepted enough, and there are other far more important issues to deal with, and they don't like the kind of focus on, on marriage. Um, I don't share that right. feeling. Right. I mean, it, it depends on where you are, but there are certainly, you get legal protections with marriage that you don't get um, for by being a you know common law married or, um, or just living together. So it seems incredibly important to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's still, still in the, in the US, even though same-sex marriage is is fully legal in every every state here. There's still lots of hoops you have to, to jump through to do things like if you're, you know, if, like if my wife had a kid, I would have to legally adopt the kid. Um, I'm right. Not, actually, I'm not sure about that. That might be state to state. It might not be the case mm. where, where I live, mm. but uh, but people still have to sort of go through these hoops. Um, you know, it can be very difficult. Whereas I I don't think there are legal there's a legal difference between civil partnership and marriage here um i don't know about um common law things i think um if you're only common law married there may be some other issues with um uh child um with with um being able to see children or for example if you're in a blended family the stepchildren that you might have raised together with your family or your non-biological children if you're gay or lesbian but yeah so how do you see the future in this regard Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that this trend will continue and then I think it will end. I think that we are in the midst, especially in the United States, in a series of, of moral panics that are just building upon each other. Um, and I think uh, so what we're going to see now, like right now, legally, there's all these fights in the US over uh, things like uh, children's access to, to hormone blockers, um, Trans women and, and women's sports. These are now have now entered. It's not just cultural. These have now entered uh, entered the realm of, of politics. Um, so this is going to be, I think, a, a big um, breaking point among conservatives and liberals in the coming years. Uh, I th I have hope. I always have hope that at some point things will get back to normal. I don't know what precise moment I would say constituted normal that we need to get back to. Uh, maybe sometime around like 2015. Um, but yeah, I think right now we're in this sort of strange moral panic uh, that has to do with social media and the response to Donald Trump and um, lots of things building on each other. And that I hope that someday the fever will break 
um, because it, it always does. You know, we see these we see these uh, these trends throughout human history, and they always end. Um, I'm just not sure when this one will. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm sorry if I was a bit rambling and digressive and oh no, this is articulate today. <laughs> it's so great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been my pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.